Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Body Bags with Joseph Scott Morgan. I lived in the mountains for a long time as a college professor up in the North Georgia Mountains in the Blue Ridge Mountains specifically. There was a place I'd like to go to every now and then, hop in my truck, sometimes by myself, many times with my my son in tow. My wife would, and I would go up there on the weekends as well. And it, it's one of those places that's untouched. Uh, it's, a, it's a federal park. It's called Winfield Scott, and, and there's actually a Lake Winfield Scott up there. And when you see it, it's surrounded by hemlock trees and these big, beautiful indigenous pines some hardwoods, and the lake is stocked with trout. But you know, the thing about that lake is that on the surface, it's absolutely gorgeous. The water seems almost untouched, and you can take photos up there, and it's like it's frozen in time, a place of beauty. You almost hate to disturb the water, but the moment you pick up a stone and you throw it as you're standing on the bank into the middle of it, there's a ripple that goes out. And anything that's on the surface is affected. E- even, even the picture you have in your mind's eye of it is disrupted. And for that moment in time, you've changed the face of that otherwise pristine environment. I think, at least in my way of thinking, that 60 years ago in Dallas, Texas, that's kind of what happened. That's what happened on November 22nd when our president at the time, John F. Kennedy, was shot. Because there were those times prior to President Kennedy having been assassinated, murdered, and those times afterwards. And we as a country, I think, at least my generation, marks that time that way. Today we're going to chat about the failures of the medical legal system in John F. Kennedy's assassination investigation. 
I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. Hey, David, you know where I was when John F. Kennedy was murdered? Uh, I'm thinking you probably weren't born yet. I was in utero. <laughs> I was in my mommy's tummy, as as it were. Uh, yeah, that's where I was. And and still, even though you know, I obviously don't have a a real time connection to that event. So many of my friends do that are older, and you can talk to those folks and say, "Do you remember where you were when the president was murdered?" And they will be able to tell you. Uh, just spot on, you know, what they were doing, where they were. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of like uh, 9-11. You know, you ask people now, where were you? What were you doing? And and I think that it's, maybe you could, I don't know, maybe you could go back to Abraham Lincoln's time. You know, where, if, if you could talk to those people that were living during that time post-Civil War, immediately post-Civil War, and you ask them, where, where were you when you found out that Lincoln died or was, was murdered? They could probably tell you that that's kind of, etched into their memory. But even now, 60 years later, we've got generations that have been born afterwards and people still know the story. And I think that it's still haunting us as a nation. I, I think that that's probably an understatement. I think it's one of those stories that will never end. And what you're going to talk about with regard to the autopsy, this is the second part of the story that people don't know. There are plenty of theories that have been bandied about. Most people tell you that they don't believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone and shot Kennedy from behind from the sixth floor of Texas School Book Depository Building, uh, while others will say many other things and what they've heard. Let's just start from the moment the limousine convertible in Dealey Plaza. The president's been shot. If we start right there, what took place with the president of the United States of America? Obviously, the most glaring piece of evidence is going to be the Sapruder film. And I'm talking about just from a uh, from a death investigation perspective, nothing else. We can look at that and think we've just witnessed, you know, the murder of a sitting American president. And to this day, there are all these questions that exist. And look, people can go down the road with a variety of different types of scenarios that may or may not happen. But, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do body bags was, at least in my own little way, I could perhaps introduce some science into things so that people, from a forensic perspective, so that people could understand, um, you know, what what they're seeing at scenes and that sort of thing and try to interpret some of the, the data that comes in. Um, and, and there was so much. I mean, th- there truly was, Dave, you know, in this particular case that was essentially kind of bulldozed over for any number of, of reasons that have been put out over the years as rationales as to why we didn't do this and why we didn't do that and why we did this. And you look back at it and you think that if you, if you had just merely taken the time to stick with a standard procedure, you wouldn't have all these questions that are left dangling out there. These, these things that people scratch their heads over people, study and write books over uh, for years and years afterwards. If you had just taken that moment in time to hit pause and to work the case, that's what it comes down to. And that's, that, that's what makes this such a monumental failure, Dave. Okay. The standard procedure you're talking about is about the autopsy itself, performing the autopsy within the jurisdiction, which was not done. According to Texas state law, the standard is that the autopsy should have been done in Dallas County. And again, per state law, which states in all cases of accident, homicide, suicide, and undetermined deaths, the medical examiner is mandated by Texas law to determine the cause and manner of death, correct? Yeah. Whose jurisdiction was that, Joe? As a death investigator, who should have been in charge of the investigation of the murder of a man in Dallas, Texas? Well, the the prosecutor for Dallas County it lays right at that individual's feet. And what's really striking about this is that they had Dallas County had actually a real gem of a person in place uh, for forensic autopsies, Uh, a man that was for his day and time 
was um, in the forefront of, uh, well, certainly in the sense of Texas, kind of codifying uh, the standard for death investigation. And let me back up just just a second because a lot of people don't understand what what goes on in Texas relative to death investigations. You know, they, I don't know if we discussed this before, but it's kind of an interesting little aside. Um, traditionally, Texas, not traditionally, Texas does not have coroners, all right? Uh, they actually have the justice of the peace is the de facto coroner in the state of Texas. And prior to Dr. Earl Rose, who was the forensic pathologist and the chief medical examiner, if you will, for Dallas, Texas at that time. And he had just taken that office not too long before all of this went down. As a matter of fact, I think it was earlier in 1963. He just kind of appears. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Earl Rose is board certified forensic pathologist. So you're not talking about just some pathologist that just walks in off the street that happens to do hospital pathology. You're talking about a highly trained individual uh, that was a forensic pathologist that had done forensic autopsies that understood wound ballistics and could contextualize everything. And just imagine, if you will, you're faced with seemingly probably the most daunting murder investigation any jurisdiction could possibly be faced with. And you have at your, literally at your fingertips, access to this fantastic forensic mind that is in the hallway, Dave, of Parkland. Just let that sink in. To be clear, as you said, Joe, Earl Rose was the medical examiner for Dallas County, Texas at the time. However, at the trauma room door, Rose was met by the Secret Service and the president's personal physician who informed Rose that there was no time for an autopsy and that the body would be transported to the airport. Rose objected, tried to stand in the way, but was reportedly pushed aside by the president's aides, and the body was transported back to Washington. That's what happened. Uh, I, I don't, uh, and, and here, here's the interesting thing. Um, Parkland Hospital, where the president's motorcade went to, is a fine hospital. It, it and had a reputation as being a fine hospital. Still does. It's a teaching hospital. So you had residents there. You know, you had people that were working as neurosurgical residents. A lot has been made of that because you had all these neurosurgeon surgeons that were physically there in the trauma room when the president rolled in because they called a code. Everybody knew the president was in town. And this in a hospital, it's like a little town. It spread like wildfire. So. Everybody that was anybody sprinted toward the trauma room when the call went up, and he was there within just a few few minutes. It the the first shots, if if I remember correctly, rang out at right at about twelve thirty. It it was all said and done in the motorcade by twelve thirty. That third shot had rung out. They head to Parkland, and they're on a direct route for it anyway. That's in the general direction, but and and Secret Service types they know where all the hospitals are. As a matter of fact, before the Secret Service even brings a president in the town, they know where all the trauma centers are. They lay in a supply of the president's blood. Did you know that? At, at, at all of these hospitals where there's a trauma center, they knew where, where Parkland was, and they knew that they were on a direct route for it. So when they go under the viaduct, the, the, over the trestle, you know, they, they've got, he's got his foot in the floor. They're heading toward the, the ER. And... Within 27 minutes, I think it's 27, roughly, President's dead. I mean, they've called it at that point. Uh, so Let me ask you, Joe, was the president, based on the condition of his body at that moment when he was shot, did he die in the limo or did he actually make it? Was he alive when he got to Parkland? I, I think that if he had any kind of, of uh, pulse I've used this term before on body bags or agonal respirations, which means that your chest is still rising and falling. Um, that's going to be at an autonomic level, auto meaning self, where you're on cruise control. Even Abe Lincoln, when he was shot, Dave, um, you know, he shot, and we, we did a, a great episode of, I think it's great personally, but with, with Lincoln, you know, Lincoln lasted through the night, and he was shot in 
in an area that transected, you know, his brain, it went from, I think, right, right to left around wound up behind his left eye. I might be way off the mark there. Either way, it crisscrossed across his brain. So it's possible that JFK was alive when he technically, yeah, I can't speak to the quality of life, but uh, he would have had at least maybe agonal respirations, but he wasn't long for this world because uh, he sustained uh, at minimum two gunshot wounds and both of them in their own right were horribly traumatic. The headshot alone is enough to have taken him out just in and of itself because so much was lost. So much disruption took place. That's an, uh, it's an unsurvivable wound. So, you know, but they knew that when he rolled in, uh, the fact that they were doing heroic efforts, we've heard a lot about the, the, uh, tracheotomy that was performed. And I can address that too, because that, you know, that plays into this whole scenario about, you know, what, what are you seeing there as a clinician when you're assessing, um, when they would have made those efforts, they were merely heroic efforts because they knew that it was a president. And so they're trying to establish an airway that implies that they thought that there might be a glimmer of hope. I mean, who, you know, what physician would want to be the person to have to answer to the question of this is our president. Why didn't you try? And so that they're faced with that. And I'm sure, and they, they had to have an awareness of that. I, I don't know about you, Dave. I, I don't know that I could, I could necessarily stand there and separate my, my clinical brain from just a person, a citizen. And you're standing there over the body of the president, a guy that you've seen in the news, a guy that you've read about in the papers, Camelot, his wife is out in the hallway. Thousand day rain. Yeah. And, and, you know, how, how do you, you know, how is it that you do that? Well, in medicine, I would not walk out of that room without being able to say I did everything exactly. I knew and then made some other stuff up. Hope. Yeah. You're going to leave it all on the field, you know, to use a sports metaphor. I mean, you, you don't want to leave anything to question, which is why this bothers me so much that we have so many questions that we ought not have 60 years after the fact, there shouldn't be one question about what happened to John Fitzgerald Kennedy, president of the United States of America, leader of the free world on November 22nd, 1963. There should not be one thing we don't know. Right. You are Dave. And I'll tell you who did know something. It was Dr. Earl Rose. He was that one person. He was that, he was that one, one individual, you know, kind of crying in the dark there, shouting to whoever would listen, you need to stop. He was their first warning along the way to all those in attendance. If they had just listened to that man, instead of pushing him against the wall, physically threatening him, and then out those doors with the president's body to get him away from there, and get him away from an actual suitable autopsy. Um, he was that first warning along the way, and they failed to listen to him. Earl Rose knew that the president had been shot. He responded after the code had been called in order, in other words, pronouncement had taken place. Priest had come down to give last rites. He knew. Do you know why he knew, Dave? And this is the one thing that really stands out in my mind. Earl Rose was officed in the trauma center at Parkland. A lot of people don't know that. He was literally across the hall. And he knew what he was looking at. He knew that he was looking at, though it was the President of the United States, he knew that he was looking at a murder investigation.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. In the business of death investigation, it is profoundly important that medical legal death investigators and forensic pathologists remain that calm, quiet voice in the center of the storm where you bring scientific reasoning to an otherwise chaotic environment. And I can't begin to express to you, Dave, I know that I've mentioned his name several times, of what a significant moment in time it was where you had this man standing there telling them, that is Dr. Rose, telling the Secret Service and the aides of the president, telling them specifically that by law, by law, this is a murder investigation. It has taken place in Dallas County. We have jurisdiction over the body. And Earl Rose, years later, had said that he did not want to create any more of a stir in this environment 
that, you know, he saw that this thing was escalating beyond his control. And look, I, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to, to try to go toe to toe with the U S secret service and the authorities that have rolled into town associated with the highest echelons of the federal government. Are you going to be that person? I, I don't know that I could have been, but he warned them. He warned them because he knew the law. He knew the law in his little area of expertise, which is medical legal death investigation. All right. So he warns them that what they're about to do is wrong. They're going to do it anyway. But for those of us who don't understand Joe, it seemed to me when I was growing up that to take the president's body, because he is the president of the United States of America, what has happened is a national tragedy that his autopsy ought not be left to a local jurisdiction. It ought to go back to Washington, D.C. and be dealt with. Either I'm thinking Walter Reed or Bethesda, something, probably Bethesda because he was a Navy man, but you know, some, that's what I was thinking along those lines as the president and all that. But in reality, there's a reason that's not the case. There's a time period here. There, you, do you, doesn't the time of when you're, ex, when you're examining the body of, the, of this victim now, we are dealing with a murder victim, and it is a murder that has taken place. It's got to be solved. A trial would take place in Dallas. I mean, this is still, regardless of who's killed, it is still a local crime, correct? Yeah. Yeah, did you know there was not a statute on federal books until 65 that made the assassination of a president a federal offense. So there was not actually a law in the books relative to this. And that's isn't that odd because, you know, prior to Kennedy, we'd had Lincoln. We, we talked about President Lincoln. Um, we had Garfield, who was shot, you know, in the train station. Um, and then we had uh, President McKinley. So we had a history, you know, we, we had a history in every, all, all four of these men died as a result of gunshot wounds. And the people that were involved in their examinations had always consistently been the military up all the way through McKinley. McKinley's autopsy was very thorough. I mean, it was for their time, it was a well done autopsy. Uh, I'm thinking back right now, uh, Lincoln's was only a partial. They essentially examined his head. James Garfield, who probably, uh, not to make light, but President Garfield died more as a result of his treatment that he received. The treatment, because he lived for a while. He lived for a while and wrote letters. While After he was shot, he wrote letters yeah, about in, how he was doing. Just utter agony. And x-rays played, played a role in his case, just like they play a role in... Uh, President Kennedy's death because I think it was uh, Alexander Graham Bell introduced the first use of an x-ray machine relative to Garfield to try to locate this projectile that was, you know, still lodged in his body. And what's interesting is they, uh, when President Garfield was autopsy, they actually took out that segment of his spine and they still have that segment of his spine. Uh, which I've always found, you know, quite fascinating as well. So yeah, that we it's not like it's not like we don't have a history. There was precedent. Of, yeah, yeah, there was, and still this 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 had not been cured. And and let me just interject something here personally. I I don't have a lot of patience with people, Dave, that that say things like, well. It was a different time back then, and uh, their their ways were not necessarily the ways of, of of that we understand today. Well, let me break this down to you. Dr. Earl Rose actually wound up doing the autopsy on Lee Harvey Oswald, who was the alleged assassin. Remember, he never went to trial. And in addition to that, Dr. Uh, Rose also did. Uh, the autopsy on Officer Tibbetts, who had allegedly died at the hand of Lee Harvey Oswald. And on top of that, he did the autopsy on Ruby, who died in custody there in Dallas as well. So he's connected with all those. But but yet when you have the catalyst that kicked this whole thing off with the death of the president, uh, he's on the outside looking in. And that's, that's what's, that is what the real tragedy is here. The Secret Service are not, you know, granted, they've got a long history and their main purpose when they were established, I think in the 1870s or whenever it was, was not personal security for the president and, you know, the higher ups in government. It, it was to, to fight counterfeiting. And they're, 
in that area, they're fantastic investigators. But back then, uh, they're not homicide investigators. That's not what they do. It's a specific skill set. But Joe, let me just, the people that actually did the autopsy, once once they broke all the laws in Dallas, Texas, <laughs> once they ruined the investigation and they loaded the body on the airplane uh, to take it out of Love Field where he had landed, um, we've got the picture of uh, Johnson being sworn in by a judge he appointed, and we've got Jackie standing there in her bloody outfit, basically passing the torch, giving her approval so there wouldn't be any question. They did that on the plane in, Dal- in Dallas before they left and got in the air. They fly the body back to Washington, D.C. I'm going to assume that whoever is waiting on this in Washington, D.C. is going to be a better, better trained, better doc, better path, better everything than what was existing in Dallas, Texas at the time. That's my assumption. That's why they're doing it. Is that the case? Uh, you know what they say about assumptions. And that, that's what we're faced with, Dave. And I think that, that a lot of the general public thinks, oh, my gosh, yeah, let's get him, let's get him back to D.C. Well, first off, here's the problem. According to what, was, what has been put forth over all the years, and I find this very interesting, you're talking about the homicide of a president, the murder of a president, and he was not just Jackie Kennedy's husband. He was our president. So it has been stated that it was the wishes of the widow for President Kennedy's body to go to Bethesda because it was a naval hospital. Okay. And so what difference does that make? Because at Bethesda, you don't have any forensic pathologists. But within a stone's throw of Bethesda, you have Walter Reed. Well, guess what's housed at Walter Reed? the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. Guess what's contained within there? The Armed Forces version, their division of forensic pathology. They they actually um, had established the AFIP, I think, in uh, just in the in the years just after World War II. And as a matter of fact, uh, Dr. Uh, Ed Johnson, who was a, a colonel, in the army, he was head Dave of forensic pathology. He was right down the road uh, from his place, but yet they chose to have two completely unqualified naval physicians at Bethesda do the autopsy. They had never either one of them. Um, let me get their name straight. It was uh, Humes and Boswell. Um, they were both naval physicians. They were pathologists working at Bethesda, doing what naval pathologists at a hospital do. You know what that is? Looking at tumors and making diagnoses on surgical specimens that are coming in and, oh yeah, managing the lab. Notice nothing in that description I just gave you qualifies them to do forensic pathology. And as it turns out, neither one of them had ever even done a forensic autopsy, period. And so you're going to trust arguably what turns out to be the most complicated, complex homicide investigation that is now being performed on a body that has been removed from the jurisdiction where it occurred in a location um, that is, I don't know, just over a thousand miles away. You had to take the body there to have it done by two unqualified people. And And just to give you like a little aside about this, Many times what happens with a medical examiner's office is that when you're working there and you have a trauma case that rolls into like a major emergency room, it doesn't have to be a major, it can be any emergency room, the coroner or the medical examiner, first off, you'll go to the hospital to examine the body and interview the physicians that did the treatment. It wasn't until the next morning that these two people that did the autopsy um, on the president's body at Bethesda actually spoke with the doctors at Parkland who had rendered treatment to the president at that moment in time. They didn't have a frame of reference about the, the now infamous tracheostomy site. And people say, well, why would, why would they create a tracheostomy where you've got a gunshot wound? Well, here's why you do it. That way, if it's in a position, and this happens with some great frequency, and I can tell you why, this happens 
many times so that they don't have to traumatize the body further. All right. So you've got a hole, if you will, a bullet hole that's just off center. If people will find their larynx and kind of find where the Adam's apple would be and just go slightly below that area right there. And it's just off center where this, this defect was, they created a tracheostomy site where they could get an, an airway established. Now this happens a lot. People don't realize this. You have gunshot wounds to the chest. Uh, for instance, people will, uh, the physicians in the trauma room will actually use a gunshot wound that's existing in the chest to create, they'll open it up further to put a chest tube in to get the blood out of the chest. This, they'll do this a lot. It's not that this is an uncommon occurrence, but with Humes and, and, uh, and Basel, they had no history whatsoever of assessing trauma, ballistic trauma, particularly at that point in time. So when they're looking at this, this defect in the midline of the neck that they know is in fact, uh, they believe at least is a gunshot wound. Um, they, they can't factor that into their thinking when they're doing their initial exam. And of course that's the most important thing. And because you lose all frame of reference. And, and the other thing that, that was really odd about this case from just a practitioner standpoint, when, when Boswell and Hume saw the body, of the president when they initially opened up this casket that had like a broken handle on it and all this stuff. Body was not in a body bag. Body, they described the body as being swaddled, which means it was wrapped in sheets and uh, the president had a big bandage over his head, which is not uncommon. I mean, they'll, they'll do that with these gaping gunshot wounds. They'll wrap gauze around the head, that sort of thing to keep anything from kind of falling, falling out. Ideally, you would want the the body, they called them, they didn't call them body bags back then. They called them disaster pouches. You would want to be able to do that, but they didn't apparently choose to do that. They merely put him in the casket. They, when the president's body arrived at Bethesda, when they unswaddled the body, he was nude. There was no clothing with the body. And one of the big things that came up over the years is that I, I beg everyone that's listening to this when you take a look at the president's suit he's wearing, the president, uh, you know, you get pictures of him when he's in, in uh, you know, at Martha's Vineyard with the family and he's wearing an open collar. This man never went anywhere without a tie on, um, particularly in a formal setting. He's riding a motorcade. This is a, this is a campaign. The fact that he had a tie on and he sustained this gunshot wound to the back of the neck that impacted literally the trajectory of this round uh, because that's what's referred to as a shored, S-H-U-R-E-D, wound. There's a lot of tension placed over this area. So they could not appreciate what defects there were in the clothing at that moment in time. And it's my understanding that they never actually saw, saw the clothing until, I might have my dates wrong. It seems like 1966 is the first time that they ever saw the president's clothing and it's in the national archives. So this is after the Warren commission has come out with its document on what they say happened, but they still have not even touched the clothing yeah. to match it up with the wounds they saw. Now you mentioned that, that tracheotomy, that uh, the uh, bullet wound, if you had the shirt and the, you know, where it's buttoned with the tie and all that, what would you be able to tell from that? It would be significant uh, because you can track you can listen, clothing moves independent. <laughs> I don't care how tight your clothing is. The clothing moves independent of, of the exterior of your body. All right. That goes without saying, it doesn't matter how tight your vestments are that you have on. And one of the things that is brought up by Humes and Boswell is that when the president is sitting in the car and we've seen him, you've, there's been, there's images of him, even in the early part of the Zapruder film, his hand is raised and he's waving. That's what politicians do in the back of cars. They're trying to make a connection with a crowd. Well, think about raising your arm and you're wearing a shirt or maybe you're wearing a jacket right now as you're listening to this. Your, your clothing will actually adjust according to the movement of your arm. So your uh, guys that wear sports coats, I know I have to wear them on air a lot. Um, 
they bunch up in the back. You'll create like a crease back there. And so if you don't have a full appreciation of the position of the individual in the vehicle and to try to understand uh, where they were relative to all the other individuals in the car and also the relationship of the anterior side of the body, the neck, where you have this collared shirt, you lose all perspective. And remember this, this bullet now that we're talking about is also known as the magic bullet. Magic bullet. Yeah. And this is going to go on to create, I don't know, I think it's seven other wounds or something like this in, in the governor's, uh, the governor's body. It goes into JFK's upper back, correct? Yeah. Comes out his throat, makes a right hand turn into his right arm. It goes into Connolly. Yeah, it goes into Connolly and, and goes through his rib and he's seated in a jump seat that is actually, the the pictures are de- are deceptive that you see it. They are those jump seats are not sitting directly in front of one another. And Conley, no, they're not. Watch his hand. <laughs> watch his hand on the hat. That gives you an, yeah. a, an idea of what's going on and when. Yeah, and the trajectory when that bullet exits the president's uh, throat, it it does strike Conley, and so it's going to take out. You know, I think one of his ribs. It's going to go down and shatter. You know, his wrist, and eventually, it's going to come to rest in his left inner thigh. So you've got this thing creating like seven different defects and making crazy turns and all that sort of stuff uh, that many people have opined about over the years. But just the clothing alone and not having access to that clothing to examine it um, contextually relative to the injuries that you're seeing on the body, it's quite an amazing thing. Uh, And, you know, back in Dallas, You've still got an active crime scene back there. And, and Dave, I, I got to tell you one thing here that uh, once one image has always, stru- has always struck me um, going back to Parkland, thinking about this. And I listen, don't believe anything I'm saying. Go look it up yourself is what I'm saying to my audience right now. There's an image of a what appears to be a Secret Service agent in the ambulance bay adjacent to the presidential limo they have taken the trunk is open on the car they have taken this the the bubble top out apparently it would fit back there they've got the bubble top now in place on top of the car they're standing there dave with a stainless steel bucket and they're washing out the interior of that car at parkland and if you don't believe me Everybody go look at it. It's out there. There's an image of this taking place. And so that car, that car is a crime scene. That car is a crime scene. As a matter of fact, the whole damn Dealey Plaza was a crime scene, but it was not locked down. There were still two bone fragments that were found later on that had to be brought to Bethesda to be examined that were not discovered at that period of time. And and those are key because what you're talking about is when you begin to think about wound ballistics, particularly as they apply to the head, to piece together this fragmented skull, and trust me, it was fragmented. You're talking about a 6.5 millimeter uh, military round that delivers a, an incredible punch here. If you're just talking about the Carcano round alone, or any kind of, of high-end, high-velocity round, the skull is going to fragment. And it's in multiple pieces. Even even Humes and Boswell will talk about when they they didn't even have to use a saw on the president's skull to open it up, that when they reflected the scalp, the skull was particulate, came apart in their hands. So when you're trying to assess the skull, one of the things that you look for is internal and external beveling. And that gives you an indication of of where a bullet entered Entered the, entered the skull. It's just like throwing a rock through a piece of glass. One side's going to be smooth and the other side is not going to be smooth. And that's one of the things we look for. But unfortunately, I think a lot of evidence was left behind. And now, unfortunately, we're so far down the tracks, Dave, that I don't know that we'll ever be able to answer some of these questions.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Assessment. Without an assessment in any kind of homicide case, when you cannot gather the facts appropriately from the beginning, you can lose so much. And the fact that you take arguably one of the most complex homicide cases that has been on our radar now for 60 years in the past 60 years and you throw it into this sea of chaos this political world that's all churned up it's a recipe for disaster and when the president's body arrived in bethesda that night on air force one with a newly sworn in president and a grieving widow it seems as though that whoever was in charge didn't know what they were doing. I think that that's as kind as I can be with that statement because it was at that moment in time you needed to have someone that was fully in charge of of their faculties trying to understand how to direct people, what people should do. And one of the one of the measures of that when you think about forensics is you have to know your limitations, and if you don't know what to do, you defer to those individuals that do have specific knowledge about forensic uh, science, and you defer to them and let them handle it. Yeah, the president of the United States of America, they're trying to rush an autopsy out of state 
and get it done as quickly as they can trying to find a bullet. That's what it amounts to. Yeah, isn't, isn't that something? How do you know? How can you tell where the bullet entered when it's already in that? I mean, they don't look at it the right way. You don't. Where where do you start with that? If it was done the right way, where would you start, Joe? Well, the the, the most important thing uh, in a case like this, and just not just not just from trying to track things, but also a documentary perspective, are X rays, and they did do X rays, uh, and there's been a lot of questions about the quality of the X rays that they had. And again, the technology then is not necessarily what it what it is today. And that's not an excuse. It's just that things have been fine-tuned since then. We have an expectation now with uh, the way we do x-rays. They're much more fine-tuned. If you've got this radio, radio opaque bodies that are you know, along a wound track, you can really pick up a lot of the, the little nuanced areas. Uh, back then, you, necessarily, you could not necessarily pick them up the way you can now. You could see it, but it wasn't in as fine detail. So x-rays are where you start before you ever do anything. And I, I question even how those x-rays were performed, you know, on the president's body. You know, I talked a, a little while ago about the body being swaddled and that sort of thing. I really wonder if those x-rays were done prior to his head being unwound uh, with the the bandages they had on there. And let me back up just for a second here. When you begin to think about what was going on at this historic moment in time when you've got the body of the commander in chief uh, laying there in this autopsy suite in Bethesda, they've got a, um, this is a teaching area. They've actually got grandstands in here. So there, there are uh, um, uh, seats for people to observe. There have been some estimates that there at any one time, there could have been up to 32 people in this room. So you're, you as a physician, an inexperienced physician in the area of forensic pathology, you're trying to perform a task that you've never performed before in front of a live audience on the body of the leader of the free world. Just let that sink in just for a second. Um, you know, I've, I've been around a lot of forensic pathologists in, in my lifetime. Uh, I've been very fortunate and blessed to have sat at, at the feet of some pretty learned learned folks. And uh, one thing you always knew was that um, there was a master and commander in that room, that they were in charge. And by God, no one else was to be in there, period, end of story. Um, and that was not the case in that environment. And Humes and Boswell both have stated that there was nobody else giving them direction in that room. Um, Maybe that's maybe that's so. But Dave, I know that you've had an experience, I'm sure, in your life where you don't have to have anything said to you, merely a look. And you're talking about a military organization here. Merely a look uh, can convey volumes to you within this environment. And so they're having to contend with this highly, highly technical uh, undertaking, and they're doing it in, under a microscope here. And um, it's even they, even they realized, I think they being Basel and Humes, realized that they were out of their depth. And here's why I know this. Um, they reached out uh, knowing that there was an autopsy that would be performed uh, to, uh, to AFIP, Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. And they sent over uh, Dr. Pierre Fink. Now, People might not be familiar with Dr. Fink, but Dr. Fink was a forensic pathologist. Ballistics okay. expert. Yeah, he was actually present in the room. And his his area of expertise is actually wound ballistics. So you've heard about all of the studies that uh, have been hinted at over the years where uh, the Army, the military would conduct uh, 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 ballistic tests on cadavers, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, he's the guy that would would look and assess the the bodies that had been shot, whether they, you know, primarily animals, uh, to try to determine the effectiveness of, of weaponry at that point in time. And so he, he did come to Bethesda that night. Here's the interesting little aside. Now, this guy who is, 
I guess he is the gold standard when it comes to ballistic assessment. Prior to him arriving, Humes and Boswell had already removed the president's brain. It had already been taken out of the cranial vault at that moment in time. And, you know, according to their reports, they took the brain and placed it in formalin to fix it because you don't, uh, with brains, brains are, are um, they're an inter- they have an interesting consistency. They're, it's not as soft as like a jello, okay? It's a bit firmer than that. But in order to dissect a brain, it needs to be firm. So what we normally do at autopsy many times is you will take the brain and we have a way of anchoring it with strings uh, through, there's a little nerve bundle at the base of the brain uh, where the optic nerves come out and all this sort of thing. And we can suspend the brain in a bucket of formalin, which is a type of formaldehyde and, and it's being anchored in there with strings. So it's kind of floating in this big bucket and you let it set, some people will let it set up to two weeks. And so when you t- finally take the brain out of this bucket, it has a very firm, hard consistency. And so the dissection is done, what it's referred to as bread loafing. So you go from the frontal lobe, lobes bilaterally of the brain and you slice like, like, like you're slicing a loaf of bread and you can actually flip through it like book leaflets almost, or slices of bread, and you can appreciate each bit of trauma along the way. Well, that was the intent with this, but the brain had already been removed from the head prior to Fink arriving. What's so tragic about that is that Dr. Fink, with his expertise, at least at minimum, he could have been standing there to see in context what the skull looked like, what the brain looked like within the skull and to have been able to assess it before it was ever removed. As a matter of fact, if it were my autopsy, I would have automatically have deferred to Dr. Fink and have said, man, you got your scrubs on, uh, you got your gloves on, come on over here, man. We're going to let you handle this part of the dissection because, you know, uh, people, people look at the president's autopsy uh, and the, here's another thing that they don't really understand. You know, his, his autopsy was not a complete autopsy. They, they examined the heart and the lungs, but nothing else was examined on the president's body. As a matter of fact, probably the most critical thing that still to this day, I, I, it, it just absolutely, just absolutely uh, blows my mind. The president's neck was never dissected. So at autopsy, what we do is, when we actually reflect reflect the chest, essentially is what we do, and we literally goes over the face when we make the famous Y incision that autopsies are known for, we go in then and dissect out the trachea out of the neck. I mean, everything. We go all the way up to the tongue, uh, remove everything down, and that way we can see all of the organs of the neck, and there are multiple vessels that run through here. You have the trachea that runs through here the larynx, the tongue, all of the stuff that runs through here, you want to be able to see behind those organs of the neck. You want to be able to see uh, the structure of the, of the spinal column at that point in time. I mean, I don't know. I, to me, that's kind of critical. That was never done. And Humes was even quoted as saying that, let me see, let me get the phraseology right here. I don't want to misquote. He said, he said it, would have been, it would have been a crime is the term he used to have dissected the president's neck. And I'm thinking, have you lost your mind? It would have been a crime to have dissected his neck. You're talking about an individual that had, that you guys are saying it's got a bullet hole that is running through the neck and exits out of the front. And you think that it would be a crime to remove the organs of the neck. Give me a break. Have you lost your mind? it's a crime not to. Yeah. and, And as it turns out, I think that that goes to the bigger picture here where you're looking at this and you're thinking, you know, how, how could you, you know, how could you have, have just kind of taken this so lightly and not done, done your job? And again, they defer back to, to the family's wishes. This, this is something I keep hearing all the way through. And it's kind of a weasel thing to say when you're in authority over, over an, uh, an autopsy and certainly a homicide investigation of this magnitude. And you're saying, well, we're going to stick with the family's wishes. 
but he was also everybody's president. And now, 60 years later, because such a poor job was done, I don't know that, you know, looking back retrospectively, I think a lot of people would have wanted to have uh, had a more thorough autopsy. You jump, you jump forward, Dave, we'll see, that was in 63. You jump forward to 68, the president's, uh, the president's brother, uh, Bobby, was at the ambassador. Uh, he had just given this fantastic speech. He's going through the kitchen uh, at the ambassador hotel, and he is assassinated by Surin Surin. And to give you an idea how, how much things had changed between 63 and 68, as you well know, that took place in Los Angeles County. Well, who was who was the chief medical examiner slash coroner? It was Dr. Tom Naguchi. Thomas yeah, Naguchi. He was, he's one of my heroes, as you know. And the family had told the folks with L.A. County at that point in time, look, uh, <clears throat> yeah, w- we don't really need need the autopsy. We know what, what killed him. And Dr. Naguchi said, you know what? I think we're going to go ahead and do an autopsy. And not only are we going to do it, but when I do it, I'm going to have like five forensic pathologists in the room with me. He actually, to show you how thorough Dr. Naguchi, and just so the people understand, um, uh, Bobby Kennedy's autopsy has been named in a, has been cited a couple of times as the most thorough forensic autopsy that's ever been conducted. Just let that sink in compared to what happened to the president's body. Forensic pathology, medical legal death is such a small community, even though, we didn't know in 68 what we know now. People talk, all right? And Noguchi would have been fully aware of, of the rumor mill. He would have heard about what had gone on in Bethesda that night. He not only reached out to AFIP and had them send people, Dr. Fink was present for Bobby's autopsy in L.A. That's quite fascinating uh, when you, you look at that. You know, in 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 its totality, you think about how much the how much things had changed just in that period of time, um, and I, I I never want to hear anybody say that you know that they didn't know any better uh, at the time of the president's uh, assassination. That it, it was you know well one pathologist is just as good as as any other pathologist. No, that's not the case because Earl Rose had been doing homicide autopsies in Dallas. Uh, there were, as a matter of fact, um, it, let's just say for the sake of argument that, okay, going back to DC with the president's remains was a good idea, which you could never convince me that it is or was within an hour, within an hour's plane flight, you could have had, arguably, at that point in time in 63, you could have had the top forensic pathologist in the country standing in D.C. there to do that autopsy. But yet you choose to go down this path utilizing two naval physicians who I'm sure were fine hospital pathologists, but not for this particular case. You, you could have had Milton Helpern. You could have had uh, Dr. Fisher, who was in Baltimore. You could have had Werner Spitz, who was in Detroit. You could have had uh, literally a pantheon. There's a pantheon of these forensic uh, pathologists that are out there that were practicing at the time that now we look back and if in forensic pathology, if, if we had a Mount Rushmore, these guys' faces would literally be on it. But yet, you chose not to do that. You chose to go down this path. And this is, you know, my, my little slice of the pie here from a medical legal standpoint is just a small portion of, of the overall case, you know, relative to how the president's murder was handled. I hate calling it an assassination. Yeah, it was an assassination, but that's such a political term. At the end of the day, you're talking about a murder, a murder that occurred in Dallas County, Texas. The husband and father was taken away from his family. And they didn't get answers. They had to have been haunted. But Joe, this is one of the things that goes that feeds the conspiracy. I want to ask you about the wounds. Were any of the other wounds he sustained were they uh, life threatening? 
other than the headshot, was the back, the shot to the back, was it deadly? I, I don't, well, gee, Dave, I don't know because the neck wasn't dissected. You know, and I, again, I, I know, um, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm being flipped by saying that, but, you know, when, you know, I would love to be able to answer that question. And I think that many people would, would like an answer to that question definitively. But if you're looking at this from the perspective of, um, you know, uh, gee whiz, I wish we had time to go back and get a do-over. There are no mulligans in forensic pathology. You don't get a do-over. You get to do it the first time. When people are, are quick to say, again, I, I have to emphasize this point, well, they didn't do things back then like they do them now. It's unfair to judge that. They were, we're talking about we're talking about the same generation that within five years would put a man on the moon. Are you kidding me? You're not intellectually sophisticated enough, medically sophisticated enough at this point in time to understand the gravity of what you're in the middle of, that you're going to make, allow people to make decisions driven by emotion at that moment in time is beyond the pale. I don't think that there's any, there was no excuses then. There's still no excuses today for it because now you've left this generation and generations to come without any solid answers. And Dave, I don't know that we'll ever have any conclusive answers as time goes on. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.